0: Well, congratulations. You made it halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes. That's an achievement, isn't it? (laughs) We've had five talks uh, so far, and there are five to go, so we're exactly halfway through. So well done. Now, if working through this book was like a walk in the hills, this is quite a good place for us to stop and get our flasks out. And have a sandwich and look back at where we've climbed from and have a little pause and think about where we're going to climb next. This is a good place to stop and take stock. And I say that especially because I think we could view this book in two parts. The first six chapters reveal what I've called, if if you've got one of the, the sheets there with the notes on, I've called the first part, the 12 chapters, first six chapters represent or articulate a disappointing quest. Uh, when I was in my late teens, many, many years ago, there was, a, there was an Irish, well, they're still going now, an Irish rock band called U2. I, I was staggered to find that they formed in 1976. It made me feel old. But when I was in my late teens, the Irish rock band U2 released a song that was called. I think it was one of the songs that really made them famous. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. If we, if we, I, I'd, I'd love us to do a concert, and when we get to the to that line, I'll hold the microphone out and you sing that. You, you, you. If you remember this song, I've climbed the highest mountains, I've run through the fields only to be with you. I've run, I've crawled. I've scaled these city walls only to be with you. You know it. Well done. That's amazing. Thank you, Sam Brown. Over the last five weeks, this is exactly what we've been seeing. Here's a man, the teacher, searching with all his might. He's been searching for meaning. He's been searching for satisfaction. He's been searching for a measure of control. He's been searching for justice. He's been searching for security. And he tells us that in the end, this great quest left him bewildered and disappointed. As he heads for death like everyone else does, swept along by a change that he can't control, and keenly aware often of how unfair life can often be, the teacher can only cry out longingly, Who knows? We're going to skip over chapter six, but just look at the very end of chapter six. Chapter 6 expresses his disappointment with a string of unanswered rhetorical questions. And in verse 12, there's a kind of double bewilderment. Who knows, the teacher cries, who knows what is good? And who knows what will happen? Very significant double Who knows? This teacher, as he searches, this is his conclusion at the end of the first part of this book. Who knows what is good? And who knows what will happen? His conclusion is that without God, humans have no ultimate values to live by and no ultimate purpose to plan for. But thankfully... The book doesn't end at the end of chapter 6. We're just stopping for our sandwiches at this point. Because once we grasp what the teacher spent six chapters telling us, there's an obvious question, I think, isn't there? In the light of his conclusions, how then should we live? In the light of this conclusion... One writer suggests that we have two options. The first is escapism. And I quote, When we realise that we cannot explain everything, when we realise that the people we love will become ill and die, and we don't know why God could allow this to happen, Once we accept that there is injustice and oppression, or we have to face the fact that there is a throbbing hurt at the core of our soul that won't go away, one option is to flee reality and numb the pain to avoid the problems. But this teacher doesn't leave us to drown out the void by distracting ourselves, or by getting high on some substance. And I think that means that this teacher believes that there is hope in all this madness. The book carries on. And for this teacher, looking life, looking reality, right in the eye, doesn't lead him to denial or escapism, but to hope. And so I've, I've kind of called the second half of this book An Invincible Hope. Hey, I should be clicking on it. It carried away. There you go. When you see it and hear it, you remember it twice, don't you? So there you go. I want us to see that from chapter 7, the language of the teacher begins to change. Now, For sure, there is still lots of wrestling still to come. But overall, the tone of the second half of this book changes. It isn't the language of fruitless searching that we find in chapters 1 to 6. From here, actually, the book reads much more like the book of Proverbs. And the next six chapters are filled with wisdom sayings and little anecdotes, and little parables, and stories, and examples. In the first part, the teacher has been exposing and undoing our fantasies. In a sense, he's been doing a kind of demolition job, breaking, popping the bubble of our pretenses, But I hope that we'll see in the second part that the teacher gives us a compelling and beautiful vision of what it means to live wisely. The teacher is telling us that despite the brokenness that there is in this world, it is possible to live wisely in it. I hope by dividing things up this way you can see something of where we've come from and a little bit of where we're going. So over the next five weeks, this, this, is, this is where we're going to go. There are six chapters. We're just going to do five further talks. And we're going to think about what it means to live wisely under these five headings. <laughs> Today, being a person of humility. Next week, we're going to think about being a person of depth. Thirdly, being a person of courageous, risk-taking generosity. Fourthly, being a person of joy. And as we get to the end of the book, chapter 12, we'll think about being a person of godliness. I want to suggest to you that Ecclesiastes is written to show us that there is a better story. So congratulations for coming so far. Don't drop out now. This vision is where we're going to go. This is where the teacher wants to take us. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time this afternoon looking briefly at the first one of these, which is humility. What does it mean to be humble? I want to describe, you'll see from the notes, I want to describe or, or reflect upon humility under three headings. Um, but there's a striking thing to notice first here in chapter 7. The, the teacher argues that we should live wisely, but he recognises that there are limitations to our Wisdom. So, he, he, he says at the end of verse uh, 12, wisdom preserves those who have it. Um, he, he commands wisdom in this chapter. But if we drop down to verse 23, the teacher says, all this I tested by wisdom and I said, I'm determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So on the, on the one hand, he's saying there is hope. We, 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 he's telling us it's better to be wise than to be a fool. And it's possible to live wisely in this world. But on the other hand, we must know that even our best wisdom is limited. So the teacher cautions us to be wise and not to run away from reality, but on the other hand, not to be arrogant and think that somehow we can work out what all the answers are. Wisdom is good, but it's part of humility to acknowledge the things that we can't know and don't know. And that's what makes me want to tune in, firstly, to this idea of humility in this first talk. So we've got three headings. Um, The the second two headings, we're going to discover some things from this chapter. But the first heading is a bit more foundational. So walk, walk with me as we come through this. Living wisely in this world starts with being humble. And first of all, this will mean... Embracing Christ as our wisdom. What do I mean by that? I'm not getting that from Ecclesiastes. This this is a foundation, this is a key to unlock the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a biblical uh, vision. Ecclesiastes will provide for us, I hope, an inspiring vision of the kind of people we ought to be. We've seen it under those five headings, but I don't want you to misunderstand. Uh, this idea. I don't want any of you to think that Christianity is just one kind of self-help DIY improvement program. We're at, we're, we're not here in the business of encouraging people to try and be more moral. It, that's not a bad thing. It, it, it's. Part of what we're doing. But I want us to see that the Christian gospel is so much more and so much better than all of that. We believe that Ecclesiastes is relevant because the human author, behind the human author, the teacher here, stands the breath of God. This is God's inspired written word God has given us something here that we can rightly say this is the word of God God breathed that's why it's so timeless 3000 years old I was saying to someone just before this could have been written this week You, you read the newspapers from this past week and Ecclesiastes could have been written this week in what it describes. The, the explanation for that relevance, timeless relevance, is that this is God's Word. But God has, in addition to His written Word, given us the living Word. So, as we come to this book, I, I, I want to suggest to you that the question we need to ask is not what is wisdom? The question actually is who is wisdom? Because of Jesus, we discover that wisdom is not a program or an agenda. Wisdom is not a checklist of things to do, it isn't being intellectually clever or insightful. Wisdom is not finding enlightenment in some secret system. In short, wisdom is not a thing or an it. Wisdom is a living person. And because wisdom is a living person, it requires a particular kind of response. In the Gospels, in John's Gospel. We're told Jesus once fed a large number of people miraculously. And then he got into a boat, (coughs) massive crowds. Jesus got into a boat and he sailed across a lake, Galilee. (coughs) People were so amazed by what Jesus had just done that they wanted to make him king. Pretty sensible. They'd never be hungry again with this guy in charge. They wanted to make him king. They'd never seen anything like it. And so as Jesus sails across the lake on, in, in the boat, many people hot it around the lake to try and catch him when he lands on the other side. And when he lands, they, they come to Jesus and they ask him the wrong question. And this is the question. The question they ask Jesus when they find him is, what should we do? I think this is how we often are, isn't it? We, we want a checklist. What should we do? Tell us what to do, Jesus. I think on one level, if, if, if we were being cynical, it's possibly because we want to know what we can get away with, isn't it? <laughs> tell, tell me what to do so I can be just this side of that line. Uh, I want to know what the, what, what, what the minimum requirement is. What should we do, Jesus? And Jesus told them exactly what to do. And uh, here it is. Jesus said the work that God requires, the work of God, is this. To believe in the one he has sent. Isn't that a stunning answer? The work that God requires of us before any other activity is to believe in Jesus. And in fact, there's a sense in which God sent Jesus into the world so that this would be our response To believe in the one he has sent. That means that Christianity, therefore, cannot begin with us trying to be a certain kind of person in order to gain favour with God. What Christianity begins with, rather, is us falling at the feet of Jesus embracing him, receiving him, trusting him to be to us all that we need. It doesn't begin with what we do for him. It begins with us recognising who he, who he is and what he has done for us. His life in this world... The eternal Son of God, incarnate as a human. His death on a cross for our sins. His resurrection powerfully to new life. His exaltation to the right hand of God and the throne room of the universe. Do you realize what God offers to you? The most famous verse in the whole Bible is what? John 3.16, arguably. For God so loved the world that he gave, what? His one and only Son. Why? So that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So when the teacher calls us to live wisely in this broken world, do not miss the fact that this is firstly, before anything else, a call to humble faith in the Lord Jesus. The first step in true humility is really acknowledging that without Christ our human quest will always end in disappointment. And that apart from him, we cannot find true wisdom and thereby save ourselves. As we confess our need and embrace him by faith, He promises to save us from sin and death and hell and futility. The reason I call this invincible hope is because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. Christ comes to you. The Father sent him to you. He comes to you clothed in all the riches and goodness and grace and kindness of God. And part of my job as a minister of the gospel is to call you to believe in the one that God has sent to you. To embrace him. To trust him. This is the key that unlocks Ecclesiastes. But with that in mind, let me show you some truths from chapter 7 as we dig into this as well. Secondly, being humble is partly about learning to live with our limitations. And I want to draw your attention to this in two ways from this chapter Very simply, first of all, the limitation of death. You've seen already, some of you said to me, man, it's a miserable book this, isn't it? (laughs) It's so heavy and depressing because this teacher keeps bringing me back to things I don't want to think about. One of the central ideas in Ecclesiastes is the reminder that none of us can avoid death. But the teacher makes a very striking comparison at the beginning of this chapter. The proverb is excellent. A good name is better than fine perfume. In other words, there's no point wearing nice aftershave if everyone thinks your character stinks. It's a great proverb, isn't it? If you smell nice, but every time people hear your name... They, they, they hear nails going down a blackboard, you know. Ah! There's no point smelling nice if everyone thinks your character stinks. We get that. But the teacher uses that to make another comparison. And the second comparison is that the day of our death is better than the day of our birth. I think this is quite hard to understand because funerals are very sad. And births, generally, are so incredible and joyful. We, we face bereavement in our family this year. And it's not an easy thing to walk through. Those of you here may be struggling with that. How is the day of death better than the day of birth? Maybe there's something here about birth being about unknown potential. Whereas in death, we see something of life being fulfilled. So when a child is born, we've had some children born in our church, there's nothing really you can say, is there? Apart from, oh, doesn't he look like his mum? Or, doesn't he look like his dad? When a child is born, we have no way of knowing what that child is like. what they're going to do with their life or what they're going to be like Um, characteristics, interests, achievements but when we go to a funeral generally speaking we know how the person has lived and I think it's fair to say that when, when someone dies everything comes into focus doesn't it we begin to sense what really matters. And the idea here, I think, is that, uh, what one writer says, that a, a coffin is a better teacher than a cot. Look with me at verse 2. The teacher says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. And here's his reason. For death is the destiny of everyone. We all die, and the living, the living should take this to heart. He's wanting those of us who are alive to learn something. This teaches we've seen his urging us to stop trying to escape by laughing things off or pretending that death will never happen, (laughs) he Don't live in denial, the teacher's saying. So a foolish person, I think, might go to a funeral and in their heart be just longing to get to the pub afterwards. You know, a wise person, on the other hand, will sit there thinking, one day, this will be me. And on that day, what will my life have been worth? In other words, a wise person will let the reality of death shape what they value and how they live. Now, the limitation of death. We can't avoid it. But there's something to learn about how to live. One of the commentaries we've been using um, to help us as we study Ecclesiastes is a, a very new, uh, but it's not a commentary really, book by a Scottish uh, minister called David Gibson, Living Life Backwards. And the whole premise of his thought is that it's exactly this that, that death should teach us how to live rightly. Secondly, under this heading, some limitations in life. Un- under this heading, I just want to focus on four verses, which are verse 7, 8, 9, and 10. And th- these are not the limitations I want to highlight, so just wait with me here. There are four specific issues here. Let me put them up on the screen. Extortion... Impatience, anger, and nostalgia. This is relevant to our overall theme because I want to suggest in simple terms that all these four things are actually forms of escapism. Extortion happens when people seek to get money quickly by exploiting the vulnerable. In other words, it's a kind of shortcut, often a brutal shortcut, that is designed to get the person rich without doing any work. Escapism. No taking of responsibility, no care for others, no hard work. The, the, extortion is a work avoidance strategy that is often very cruel as well. Secondly, impatience is what we feel when we don't like waiting. We want things now. We want instant results. We don't want to have to endure delays. Impatience is a form of or a desire to escape the limitation of having to wait. Anger too. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Anger can erupt when we can't cope with disappointment. When things don't play out the way we planned or expected or when we don't get what we feel we need or worked for. Nostalgia is a strange thing to talk about here in phase 10 the teacher says don't say why were the old days better than these it's not the good old days this involves a a lack of willingness in a sense to live in the present often we're longing for a previous perceived golden age or maybe we're longing for some future time when xyz is sorted or when person X, Y, Z has changed and got sorted. We're, We're longing for the past or we're longing for the future. The point is, we're wishing the present away. Avoiding responsibility, unable to wait, not coping with disappointment, wishing the present away. What I want you to get is that the flip side of all these things Shows us the limitations that we face every day in our lives, and the teacher is reminding us here that in this world there'll be work to do. What a pain! What a limitation! Oh wow! I didn't have to. I wish I didn't have to work for it. Wish someone would give it to me. Escapism—it's a limitation. You, You get the point. And sometimes that can spill over into not just taking a shortcut, but actually abusing other people to make that shortcut. Friends, they'll be waiting to endure. Isn't it hard to wait? What a limitation that is. Farmer plants his seed. I wish I could harvest it tomorrow. It's the way, doesn't he? Sometimes he doesn't quite know how it's gonna turn out. Friends, there will be, in life, disappointments to cope with. And there will be times that are more boring or less enjoyable than other times seem to be. The point is that these are all basic limitations of living in this broken world. What the teacher is saying is that the wise person will not be trying to escape these realities or take shortcuts to somehow avoid them. The wise person will be learning to live with these limitations. The wise person will take responsibility rather than seeking to avoid hard work. The wise person will be patient and content to a degree rather than restless and impatient. A wise person will be gentle and calm rather than constantly violently blowing a fuse. And a wise person will tend to be present rather than wishing they were somewhere else. Can you feel some of these things sometimes rising within you? Are you secretly sulking because you wish things were different? Maybe you wish you had a better job or better friends. or a better spouse maybe you wish you were part of a better church this world and what it will sometimes impose on you has the power to make you bitter and grumpy and it will be constantly inviting you to take shortcuts talked about Jesus. This is not what Christ is like. It amazes me that Christ endured 30 years of obscurity in a little boring backwater nothing village called Nazareth before launching his public ministry. It is striking to me also how when the devil came to tempt Jesus, he said, I'll give you all of it. If you just bow down and worship me, shortcut. You don't need to go to the cross. You can have it all if you just do this shortcut over here. And has there ever been a person who has suffered more unjustly the perfect life the perfect life ended with him being cruelly treated like a criminal jesus the eternal son of god submitted himself to these limitations he wasn't irritable he wasn't restless do you know in the end I think our escapism can be a form of pride just look at verse 8 mentions pride the end of a matter is better than its beginning and patience is better than pride I think in escapism what we're saying is this shouldn't be happening to me Do you not know who I am? It's not fair. I'm entitled to more. Christ calls us away from our self-absorption. And he gives us a bigger vision. And part of that is learning to live with these limitations instead of being irritable and grumpy thirdly and finally being humble means recognizing our true condition i want to close by just showing you one verse um that I think is incredibly important. And it's the very last verse of chapter 7 there, verse 29. We could easily skip over this verse, but it contains a great deal of wisdom. Let me put it up on the screen here. might be a slightly different version. Verse 29 says, God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. In other words... But when we look out into this world the, the teachers remind us here this is a really th- this is a hint towards the gospel isn't it in an Old Testament wisdom book in other words God made things good and it's we who spoil things yes. and I, I think this is very different to the way we generally view things I, I think often we mostly believe that people are basically good but a little flawed and everyone makes mistakes from time to time and so, you know, that, that's the kind of way we look at the world. Some ancient cultures apparently believed that their gods were petty and corrupt and a bit vindictive. And that when they created human beings, they were having a laugh. <laughs> and they deliberately created human beings to be wired, to be flawed and selfish and nasty to each other. It was like a, a game the gods were playing we, we don't believe, most of us, in such ancient gods anymore, but our view of human nature is not that far from this idea because we say to ourselves, it's the way things are. It's only natural. Everyone's like this. And so sometimes we even end up being proud of our flaws and tolerant of failure uh, we might even see this as a good thing and even congratulate ourselves on our compassion and acceptance and tolerance. We, we might also come to the conclusion that trying to be upright is going against what is natural. Uh, let, let, me, let me give you an illustration to, to try, try and I, This is hard, I think. It, what, what I'm trying to get across is that sometimes we think that trying to be good or upright, as this verse says, is a little bit naive. When, when, I, came, when I first came to Rotherham, I was only 18, and um, I came here to work at Morby Pitt. And on the very first day, so it's a funny story, the guy I was working with found out I was a Christian. And I, I could, I, you know what that first month was like. 18 years old, guy finds out I'm a Christian. His first question to me when he found that out was, you're not a virgin, are you? That was his first question. And that month, working with that guy, this is all in the name of banter, obviously, he was having a laugh everywhere he went. So I'm I'm not going to talk about me, but this idea that to be upright... Is somehow naive. You haven't grown up yet. You just you haven't experienced what we've experienced. You're still a child, innocent. You see the point I'm making. It's kind of upside down. We're we we're, we're the mature ones, and you you you. It's hard enough to be good. It's even harder if when you try to be good, everyone thinks you're a simpleton. But that that that's the kind of morality that we're often dealing with in our world, isn't it? Listen, this verse reminds us that our many human schemes, our bias, our selfishness, our inability to be truly upright, our refusal often to see things clearly, these things are not fate. They're not natural. The teacher explains that this is not fate. It is our fault. God made mankind upright. But they have gone in search of many schemes. The teacher is trying to show us that we are responsible. We spoil What God has made good. It's there in verse 20. The teacher says indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. We're nearly done. We are not just a random part of a meaningless world so that what we do doesn't matter. That could lead to despair, but it also leads to having no basis to decide what's right or wrong. But if God made men upright and we've spoiled things, then the world is in fact not meaningless at all. And surely Christ who is the wisdom of God to us, towers above this, doesn't he? This verse helps us to see our guilt much more clearly and surely it points us to God's love and wisdom which is shown most clearly in a saviour who died on a bloody cross in the place Of sinners, a disappointing quest, and an invincible hope. So, despite the obvious brokenness of the world, this teacher is not in despair. He urges us, he urges you to live wisely. And the first step in being wise is to be a person of humility. And that humility will mean embracing Christ as our wisdom rather than searching for meaning without Him. It will mean learning to live with our limitations rather than shortcutting them. And it will mean recognizing our true condition rather than making excuses for it. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for this wonderful book. This this deep, troubling, provocative, scary in some ways book. But we thank you that though it is hard It does smash our pretense and it clarifies, sharpens our vision. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ, your son, is the light of the world. If we could wrap up all his teachings in the Gospels, it would not be dissimilar to what we're reading in Ecclesiastes. We thank you that we have a saviour who both teaches us and who stands in our shoes bearing the consequences of our brokenness and sin. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word and you would help us by your spirit to embrace him. Give us faith increase our faith Lord would you expand and enlarge our vision of Christ and would you help us as we see his beauty and glory to love him and to be increasingly more like him Bless us, we pray, in his powerful and good and eternal name. Amen.